0: Hello,
1: and welcome to Glee Books Author Talks. We've partnered with 2SER to bring you a live recording of our events, held in one of Sydney's oldest independent bookshops.
0: Thanks everybody, uh, and welcome, and welcome to Meg. I always think it's good to start these conversations at the beginning, so let's
1: start right back at the beginning. Why Penny Wong? Well, it wasn't my idea, it was the publisher's idea, publisher is Black Ink. Um, But I was a very willing recruit the minute it was suggested to me. I thought, oh yes, (laughs) that would be interesting. Why is she so interesting? Well, she is clearly different, or at least appears different. There's the obvious thing. She's um, Asian or Asian ancestry. Um, She's gay. Um, She's a woman in a very senior position. Um, Very widely respected, I think, across the political spectrum. Um, And, of course, the question everybody always asks, I'm sure we'll get asked tonight if you don't ask it to me, is, you know, is she a future Prime Minister, potentially? Um, And I have watched her, like everybody else, and thought, what an interesting woman. She's also an Adelaide woman, and I'm an Adelaide girl. I was at Adelaide University ten years before her. I'm a contemporary of Julia Gillard's at Adelaide University. And so there's a whole load of sort of adelaide things about her which, you know, I like to think I understand. adelaide things. adelaide things, yes. Like...? Well, Adelaide is a really weird sort of place. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a city of about a million people. It's got a feral gossip network. Um, it's often said among the journalists in Adelaide, in any other city, if you hear the same thing from two independent sources, you're inclined to think it's right, correct? Um, in Adelaide, it just means they've both been drinking at the Exeter. Right. Um. <laughs> and and tell me, when you first suggested the idea to Penny Wong, how did she react? Um, a straight refusal. Contacted her office and she said no. And initially, I dropped the idea at that point. Um, but then, so that was, I think, um, 2015, 2016. And then after the same-sex marriage vote, the publisher came back to me and said, look, there's just so much interest in her, and she played a leading role in the significant social reform. Would you try again? So I tried again, got the same response, just a flat no. Um, This time the publisher said, would you consider doing it anyway? And I thought about that. At that stage, we thought she was going to be the next foreign minister, She had been a leading person in the same-sex marriage. She'd been climate change minister, water minister. And I thought, yes, there is enough justification to do a biography whether or not she wants it. But
0: she came around in
1: the end? In the end, yes. It was a long process. So I spent a year researching it without any cooperation from her. I was in contact with her office. Uh, There was ongoing dialogue with them, in particular around what was private and what was public. And I more or less promised that, you know, I would observe certain boundaries around that. Um, she didn't stand in the way of people talking to me. A lot of people I spoke to during that period wouldn't have spoken to me if she had objected or asked them not to. And she didn't do that. Um, Did and you get the feeling she'd put parameters around what they would say to you? It wasn't obvious to me that she had. Um, When I finally got to meet her, one of the things she tasked me with, because she's pretty cross with me by then, um, was I'd interviewed a former partner of her, not her current partner, and she said, ''How would you like it if I went and interviewed your exes?'' (laughs) Um, So, you know... But I know that that person, a woman called Dacia Bennett, had asked Penny, you know, ''How do you feel about it?'' and Penny had said, ''It's up to you.'' So, you know, she wasn't... So she didn't like being sort of corralled into the project? No. And she made that very clear. However, she did eventually agree to be interviewed, and we had six interviews in all. And did she kind of warm to the task? Yeah, once we got going, it was fine. Like, the first meeting we had was not meant to be an interview. It was meant to be a meeting to talk about whether she would be interviewed. And that was pretty sticky. So I walked in, and she started giving me a hard time. And I started arguing my corner, and then I thought, no, no, just shut up. And so, <laughs> best decision I made in the entire project. What, so she sort of vented and then... Yes, that's right. So, she said, I've experienced you like a shadow in the corner of my life this last year, you know. What are you doing taking a publishing contract to write about somebody when you know they don't want you to, you know, I, rah can, rah rah. I mean, in a way,
0: I can <laughs> understand that, though. I mean, mm. it would be... I know she's a public figure and public figures know that they'll be scrutinised, but... It would be disconcerting having someone talk to everybody in your past.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Penny is notoriously guarded and private uh, for a public figure. Um, And I I actually do get it. I understand that and and respect her response. Um, But, you know, did it anyway. And, you know, that is what I said to her. I said, you know, I haven't just sort of wandered into this without thinking about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. And so... Biographers, good ones, which you obviously are, start with an idea about their subject and I assume could change their minds over the course of their research. Mm. And I know we had some early conversations. I suspect from that you might have changed your mind about Penny a bit over the course of your project, did
1: you? Um, Yes, I did change my mind. I actually don't recall exactly those conversations. Perhaps you can remind me. But... um I think um, she's fiercely intellectual, of course, and fiercely logical. I think what I hadn't realised is that she is also very emotional. Um, now, I know that's um, a, not quite a dangerous thing, but a, a loaded thing to say about a female politician. Um, you know, many male politicians are very emotional as well, but arguably we see it differently. Um, and we, we judge women harsher, beha- more harshly, perhaps. But I have weighed that. And I would still say that she is, and she said to me herself, I quote her in the book as saying that she is primarily driven by emotion, although she is also fiercely intellectual, fiercely logical, um, politically very strategic, you know, again and again she has made the right political call, even when she's been defeated within the party. Um, but yes, the, uh, the emotion, uh, the importance of her faith to her as well, she's Christian, and that's important to her. And the complexity of her background. Uh, You know, people say, OK, she was Malaysian, and she emigrated to Adelaide when she was eight years old, but it's much more complicated than that. Her Mm. people are Chinese Malaysian. um, And, of course, Malaysia didn't... North Borneo, where she was born, didn't even become part of Malaysia until the mid-1960s.
0: Yeah. Mm. I meant more, did you change your assessment of her contribution or of her capacity as a politician?
1: Um, Yes, I think she's been... I describe her in the book as the intellectual leader of the left faction and arguably the intellectual leader of the opposition. And I don't think I would have used those terms beforehand. So, yes, I I grew more impressed with her intellectual contribution and her astuteness. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm. And what about... I mean, a lot of the early stories and the sort of... I mean stories that she's told a lot in interviews, but which you flesh out have to do with her experience due to race. Yes. How how big a part of her political makeup is that?
1: I think it's pretty central. I mean, she would certainly say it's central, and um, she's mentioned it in just about all the sort of landmark speeches, including a maiden speech.
0: Um, And in any interview, in most profiles, there's sort of the same stories that she tells.
1: That's right, which of course always makes me suspect, Okay, that's the the surface story, what lies deeper. And I did spend some time trying to go deeper. But no, I think that's absolutely real. I think she arrived at the age of eight. Her parents' marriage had just broken up. Um, So she arrives in a big rush, suddenly in Adelaide. Um, in this atmosphere of trauma and she goes to a primary school where she and her brother are the only Asian faces in the playground and they are constantly bullied, verbal, constantly, sometimes physical. She comes home, there's racist graffiti painted on the driveway, the neighbour yells over the fence, go go home, you slanty-eyed slut. I mean, just traumatising. And I think trauma is the word, I think... Um, certainly Toby, her brother, was traumatised, but I think Penny was too. And I think some of her um, fierceness um, and arguably being almost too defensive when she's under attack, you know, I think there's a, a hypervigilance there which comes from those times. And
0: also goes to the fact, in my observation, she's always completely prepared. Mm. She never wings it. She's mm. And she never... She never... She's always... She has always calculated what she says she's very emotional but you don't see the emotion or she doesn't let the emotion run free almost mm. ever i mean i think i've almost seen it ever. twice
1: yeah. mm. no that's exactly right hyper prepared and she says and she said in interviews with others other than me that her response to the bullying was to decide i'm going to excel i'm going to do better than these people in everything in sport in schoolwork, in everything and of course she has mm. but it's also why she's private it's why she's private, it's why she is fierce in defending her internal life. She says in the book um, you know, that she has got a fiercely defended internal life and she puts that generally. She says people who have suffered from persecution develop that internal life which they're very protective of mm-hmm. and I think that's true. Yeah. So
0: you have sort of subject themes running the book and also sort of conceptual themes and one of the subject themes was marriage equality and how Penny Wong dealt with that issue as a gay woman in the Labor Party during the very, very long journey that the Labor Party had towards changing its position on gay marriage. Um, And the other was staying in the room. So her conviction that it's better to stay and argue even if you feel like storming out because that's the only way that you're gonna change things in the long term. Can you just sort of talk, uh, talk to us about those two things, how she dealt with marriage equality and how hard it was for her to stay in the room.
1: Yeah, well, the two are closely related because it was certainly the early days of the marriage equality debate which were hardest for her to maintain her commitment to the Labor Party. So, the situation was, Mark Latham's leader of the Labor Party, John Howard, um, is Prime Minister. Um, And Howard, and this is in the wake of the Tampa election, finds a new wedge by changing the Marriage Act, which has previously been silent. And no one cared. And no one cared. Um, but wanting to change the Marriage Act to say that marriage was between a man and a woman. And Mark Latham and Nicola Roxon decided, and there's a controversy about whether caucus was properly consulted or not, but they decided that they didn't want Labour to be wedged, and so they would vote in favour of the legislation. Um, Penny argued against that in caucus, but... You know, at that stage she was still pretty junior, and um, she was faced then with the decision as to whether she voted with the party um, and for her own discrimination and everybody like her, with all that meant, or whether she crossed the floor, which would have ended her political career. Um, Because in Labour, of course, if you cross the floor, it's a breach of the rules, you're out, effectively. Um, And she did. She voted um, against marriage equality. At that and time. did she
0: talk to you about how that felt?
1: Yes, she did. She felt terrible about it. It was excoriating. Um, she was sick. If you read her speeches very carefully, the, the really fascinating speeches she made around that time, at every point, she, she never actually says, I support discrimination in marriage. She talks about how how Howard is using the wedge, how this is unprincipled, how he's dividing Australia in the same way he did over Tampa. You know, she never actually talks about the issue itself, which, of course, she couldn't do Mm. without effectively leaving the party and getting out of politics. On the the Friday, after Parliament rose on the Thursday, that she took that vote, she went back to Adelaide and she had dinner with a a friend of hers, another gay woman, um, who's an academic at Adelaide University. And apparently at that dinner she was just in tears. Um, But previously she had decided not to be on the front line of gay rights because she didn't want to be the lesbian candidate or the Asian candidate. She wanted to be a mainstream politician. But In 2004, she made the decision that she would begin to work within the party to change the policy. But then
0: there were subsequent times which were really difficult too, like that subsequent Labor National Conference where they had to reach a compromise position or the leader was going to be humiliated and she had to stay in the room again.
1: Yes, that's right, because Julia Gillard, of course, was um, was not in favour of changing the party's policy. Penny had done a lot of work by then with a lot of other people and, um, and it looked as though Gillard was going to be defeated, which would have been devastating, of course, for her as the party leader. And so a face-saving thing was arrived at where people would be allowed a conscience vote, Labour MPs would be allowed a conscience vote, which meant effectively that the law still couldn't pass, kept coming up before Parliament. I mean, the irony was, before Howard did what he did in 2004 this was a state issue it wasn't mm. a federal parliamentary issue once he had introduced that it was before the federal parliament almost every session until of course the law changed mm. and then there was the moment
0: when the plebiscite finally came in and those photos of mm. her face were almost the defining yeah image of that day did she talk to
1: you about how that day felt she yes she said she was very embarrassed at having cried in public (laughs) but she yeah no it was an enormous um enormously emotional moment for her i i describe it i think i've written about it in a chapter which i is have called um arriving because i feel it was really at that moment that she actually felt that the australian people had accepted penny wong and everything she was and everyone like her So another theme through the
0: book is her ability to do deals and broker consensus positions, which is done at various points and in various subject areas, but in particular in in the very difficult water portfolio that was sort of her first big Mm. front bench position. That chapter in your book is called Penny Fails to Save the World Part One. I know it's tongue in cheek, but I covered that issue in Dally Digital <laughs> And I think you're a bit unfair because really it was her successor that unpicked that whole deal. Yes. And at least in my view, if we'd done what she, the deal she'd broken, I guess the Murray Darling would still be stuffed, but it wouldn't be as stuffed as it is now. Do you think you're a bit unfair with your well, title? The,
1: cha- the chapter title might be a little harsh, but um, I think I do tell that story in the in the chapter. So Penny Wong was um, the water minister in the lead up to what's now known as the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, but before the plan was finalised, she decided that the thing to do was to get in and buy water, buy water back for the environment, and she did a lot of that and was excoriated for it. She was burnt in effigy at Griffith, for example. Um, And... Then she is very keen, and in the interview, she is very keen to talk about how Barnaby Joyce's water minister mucked it all up. But in fact, you're quite right, it began under Labor uh, when she lost that portfolio. Tony Burke got in, and that was when the Murray Darling Basin Plan was compromised, um, arguably fatally. And we're still living with the consequences of that. It hasn't got any better under Barnaby Joyce and, and his successors, of course. But back to staying in
0: the room, she was very careful not to criticise. Absolutely,
1: and even in the book when I put it to her that um, Labor had crumbled on the Murray-Darling Basin and she wouldn't be drawn on that at all, even though it is clearly the case.
0: Then she was uh, also at the same time uh, Minister responsible for climate policy. Which is staggering in itself, isn't it, Uh, that she uh, was given
1: those two portfolios at the same time. Yeah, like two diabolical problems Mm. all at once.
0: And we all know that climate policy has been a bit of a disaster since 2007, she identifies two moments when Labor could have done something different and didn't. Mm. One was the moment just before Abbott rolled Turnbull when it could have passed the Senate if Labor had just pushed through with sittings and they didn't. And the other one was the point straight after the Copenhagen Climate Conference where Kevin Rudd could have called an election and he didn't. Mm. I. I covered that quite closely and I would add there was also I think there was a third strategic mistake Labor made which was to design that original bill so that it could only be negotiated with the coalition and not with the Greens which meant they couldn't play one off against the other they put all the eggs Mm -hmm. in one basket having gone back through that whole period how do you assess Penny Wong's decision-making and her mm. tactical response to that whole policy process.
1: Yeah. Well, I agree with you about the Greens, um, but she wouldn't because I did put that to her directly. And, and explain mm. to us why she disagreed. She says that Christine Milne, who was the lead negotiator at the time, was convinced that Copenhagen was going to result in a terrific result and that that would shame Labor and show Labor's response to the um, as inadequate... Um, and that the Greens would ride forth on, you know, a, on a train of glory and would and get a much more ambitious package through. Well, of course, Copenhagen didn't do any of those things. Um, and she recalls a conversation she had with Christine Milne at Copenhagen when Milne was devastated by the way things were going and Penny re- recalls saying, you know, this sort of reform is difficult, Christine, it's really, really hard. And you have to take your wins when you can get them. And yes, it's not a perfect package, but you know we should do it. Um, so I agree with you on that. I think there is a, a question about whether a different negotiator could have got further with the Greens, because the truth is that Rudd and Wong didn't really try no. with the Greens. They decided, and I don't think they're wrong here necessarily, that such a big economic reform needed to bi- be bipartisan. So they needed the opposition to also be on board and they thought they could achieve that and she did achieve it Mm. under Turnbull and then she wanted them to sit all that weekend if necessary to get it through before Abbott um, came in and she wouldn't tell me who opposed that but they didn't. You Mm. may know who opposed that. (laughs) And she also made the right call on not dropping it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can imagine the pressures everybody were, was under at the time, I just think it's extraordinary that she continually made the right calls politically it, and she was overruled. So she said that they should go to a double dissolution, argued incredibly hard for that to happen. Kevin Rudd in his memoirs, I'm probably the only person in Australia who's read both volumes. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> Kevin Rudd in his memoirs now acknowledges that she was right and that he should have gone to a double dissolution, which he probably would have won. And then she was the only person in the senior levels of the party who was arguing with him to hold to the policy, to see it through. Everybody else, Julia Gillard, Wayne Swan, everybody else was telling him to drop it and he dropped it and, of course, he never recovered politically. Mm. And she had to explain it. Yeah, Mm. that's right. So she then, you know, still in the portfolio, many people would have resigned... I mean, this again is her choosing to stay in the room. She didn't resign. She didn't start leaking. She didn't start undermining. Took a deep breath and carried on. Stayed in the room. I remember having
0: a a very um, difficult interview with her at that time where she was trying to defend the decision and we were sort of looking at each other and I knew that she knew that I knew that she knew and we both had to (laughs) go through the motions of asking and answering these questions. It was... Yeah,
1: just awful, awful Mm. situation. And she says in the book... You know, once, we de- once the decision was made, which was made by not making a decision, not to go to a double dissolution, I didn't know what the way forward was. And yet she had to stay there trying to put the best face on it she could until she was moved out of the portfolio. Mm. Would she have made a good foreign minister? I think she would have been a superb foreign minister. Um, Alan Gingell is quoted in the book as saying she would have been the best prepared foreign minister and she remains the best prepared shadow foreign minister possibly that we've ever had. I think you can see the quality of her thinking in her recent speeches which arguably haven't got the attention they, they should have. She made one in Jakarta, for example, in which she's talking about how the region should get together to deal with China and America and the battle of the superpowers in our region not let you know let's not wait for America to do something or be in their slipstream let's not wait for China to do something but let Indonesia and the Philippines and Japan and all the countries who have direct interest in the South China Sea actually make their own moves in that direction um, you know I think that is an extraordinary um, extraordinary insightful speech original um, without being radical um, she would have been an activist foreign minister at a time when that's what's needed, I think. How else would she have been activist? I mean, and tell us how she prepared for being foreign minister. Well, she started off going and talking to an awful lot of people and I rang many of them and I'm sure not all of them. Um, she spent a lot of time with Gareth Evans in those early days. She talked to people like Ginjal and, and Hugh White and the leading thinkers on foreign policy. But I actually heard, um, I had a p- position at Melbourne University and one day while I was beginning to work on this I just heard that she had rung a PhD candidate who was writing about India um, and her office had rung up and said, oh could Penny have a chat? <laughs> yeah. So she was really spreading her net extraordinarily wide, travelling as well. Um, she um, hired people like Alan Beam who may not be known to everybody here but a very senior um, foreign affairs uh, public servant of many years experience. But she wasn't ever just taking one single feed of advice. She was constantly casting her net forward. But ultimately, it's Gingell that she uh, describes as the most influential person on her. And he, of course, has written about the slipstream of giant powers as being the most dangerous place for Australia. For a middle power, we have to be active. We have to actually be trying to create our own and Momentum. so, just while we're on foreign policy, is there
0: are there other examples you can give of where she would have been activist?
1: Well, I think the the lead thing is that with our region, mm. uh, but also trade. She um, she was also very keen on free trade agreements, mm. um, and was quite.
0: Um, persuasive in in explaining the benefits of free trade to sort of sceptical people within the
1: party. Yes, exactly. And, of course, that's controversial within the labour movement because there are many people who think free trade agreements undermine working conditions for Australians. And she, um, there's a number of very impressive speeches where she really argues the reverse and says, you know, the last thing we want to do is be competing um, on the price of labour with third world countries. You know, we have to do something other than that and really concentrate on, you know, the benefits of free trade. So, she says
0: she considered leaving politics after the election defeat.
1: Obviously, she didn't. Why didn't she? Um, I think there's probably a whole load of reasons. Part of it, I think, is that she is a deeply committed, professional politician. Um, I quote one of the first things she wrote as an adult, which was um, a piece for the student paper on D at Adelaide University, in which she's arguing for um, professional political representation as being the most important service. This is in a student political context, but I think it's a theme throughout her career. So I think there is a real sense in which she can't imagine doing anything else that would bring her the same sense of having meaning in her life. I think she is very committed to Anthony Albanese, she supported him the first time round when Bill Shorten got the leadership and they've been close collaborators right through. So I think um, having supported him for the leadership she wasn't going to sort of up stakes and move and I think she thinks she, they can win next time round. So you think she's there because she thinks she will be Foreign Minister? I think she thinks there's a chance she will be Foreign Minister, yes.
0: Uh-huh. And. Mm. Is she, I mean, you've spoken to her quite quite recently. I mean, I think a lot of um, people in the Labor Party are still processing
1: the defeat. And she is too, yes. What what stage of grief? Well, when I, so the last interview I had with her, I did see her just a few weeks ago in Adelaide, but the last interview I had with her was in early July. And I said to her then, trying for a theme for my final chapter perhaps, you know, after tragedy there's catharsis. And she said, "Is there? <laughs> um, and then when I saw her in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago, um, when John Faulkner very kindly launched the book and Penny spoke, and I thought she looked exhausted, exhausted, mm. and and kind of flat. Now some of that is I mean, probably ponying because up
0: for another three years of opposition would yes, make you feel flat, right? Exactly.
1: So I think in common with you know a lot of other people in the party, I don't think they have recovered from the shock of the defeat.
0: Um, One of the things I liked the best in the book was uh, when you describe um, a piece that Wong wrote uh, under the title Women of Letters and she was asked to write a letter to herself and in fact to a younger self and she wrote two. Um, It was called The Time I Changed My Mind and it was about her decision to enter politics and her ambivalence about public life. And in the first letter, she said, she'd reassure her younger self that it will be all right, more than all right. It would remind me that who is in the room matters. It would remind me of how social change comes about by changing hearts and minds, by deepening understanding, by working with others, not by sitting on the sidelines. This letter would also calm my fear that this life will destroy me. It would tell me that I can still love and live and nurture and heal. It would tell me that I will not lose myself, that I have not lost me. The second letter would scream, don't do it. Do you know what this country can do to strong women, to those who are pushy and presumptuous enough to stand up? You have no idea of the bile and vitriol coming your way. And she concluded by saying she honestly couldn't, knowing what I know now, I honestly couldn't decide whether to warn you off or be supportive, Mm. which just seemed to sort of sum up the whole picture that you paint, that there's that kind of ambivalence about Mm. contributing or staying
1: private Mm. yes I think she is hugely ambivalent about that I mean she has obviously not only chosen but pursued with a great deal of determination a public life Um, she wants a life which has meaning um, always has done it's been the great driving force And, you know, it may seem obvious to everybody else that that will bring with it a level of scrutiny, including people like me, (laughs) Um, and yet she doesn't really accept that and would rather avoid it. And do you think she still has fears that the life will destroy her? I think she's very worried about the cost. In, the, in that final interview, I was at, um, she, she said something like, there are some upsides to having lost. And I said, oh, what are they? And it was all about her personal relationships, uh, being there with the children. Um, she said that her eldest child was getting very antsy during the campaign. You know, are you going to be home before I go to bed? Are you, you know, will you ring me when I work? You know, all that sort of stuff. And now she's just there. Um, and that was a real benefit. She also said that she had been terrified about the impact of being foreign minister on her personal relationships. She kind of withdrew that a little bit later Um, and you can imagine, I mean, foreign minister, you're hardly home, aren't you? Mm. Um, And uh, maintaining any sort of family life would be fiercely difficult.
0: And do you think forming a sort of a permanent relationship and having two children has changed the way that she... Thinks about politics.
1: Um, I think uh, you don't write a lot about hmm. her personal life. No, and that was part of the deal, if you like. Um, So when I was obviously I was trying to persuade her to be interviewed all the way through, and we had a conversation. I had a conversation with her office, which I know was relayed to her because she mentioned it to me about Barnaby Joyce when Barnaby Joyce was revealed as having had the affair with his staffer. And I went on the public record. I think uh, Crikey interviewed me when that first happened. And I said I didn't think it was sufficiently in the public interest to be a fitting subject of uh, media attention. And I also said, you know, obviously if he misspent public money or if she received unfair benefits, you know, that would change that. But in the absence of that... Now, of course, within 24 hours, Barnaby Joyce had made me look like a complete idiot by going all over the media himself. But nevertheless, that was my view, remains my view. Um, And I pointed to that and said, you know, I'm actually very good on private and public. Mm. And she didn't want me to interview her partner, Sophie, or her parents. Which didn't. Which I didn't. I met her, but I didn't interview her. Um, And I tried very much to... Obviously, there's stuff about the personal life in there. You can't write about somebody without some of that. And she gave me some lovely anecdotes. But I always veered away from that Mm. and I think that's fitting when I was doing a book which she didn't want done I mean it would have been different if she had been fully cooperative yeah yeah yeah. Yeah.
0: and do you but from what you could tell do you think that um you know relationship and children how has that changed her professionally I
1: I think it's um I think it's been very important to her sense of um I think it's a refuge for Mm. her this is what her friends tell me That um, the family has become a very important refuge. So she's able to go out there, be the warrior, be Penny Wong, you know, giving people hell in Senate estimates, face all the attacks. But the family is a very important refuge. And one of the reasons she doesn't want them subjected to scrutiny, I think, is obviously partly protective of them but also protective of herself.
0: But, she, but it's also clearly motivational in that in the marriage equality debate all the time, she would mention, so my kids know that mm. our family is not lesser. Yes. So it's a motivator as well as a refuge. Absolutely a motivator. Absolutely a motivator as well, yes. So you've um, explained uh, quite clearly that she was quite a reluctant starter in this project but she did just uh, launch the book, well, uh, John Faulkner, former mm. the John Faulkner launched it but
1: she was there so... What'd she make of it in the end? Um, well, one of her best friends texted me at that launch um, and said, well done, effectively, to me. And I said, oh, well, I wish Penny felt happier about it. And she said, oh, she'll get over it. And she doesn't hate it as much as she thought she would.
0: <laughs> so do you think in the end the hatred I think hatred was as good just
1: as because she was corralled?
0: Yes. Because it, I, there's n- it's not there's nothing in it that I would imagine would be
1: super offensive or difficult for her. No, no. And I doubt if there's very much in it that surprises her either. Um, But, uh, no, I mean, I would regard it as a a favourable biography. I I do regard her as an incredibly impressive and talented person. Not, not, you know, she's not an angel, of course. None of us are. But, um, so I don't think there's anything in there which she would object to. And, you know, we got on well. In the interviews themselves, once we got underway, I think we got on very well. Mm -hmm. One of her staff has said to me, if you two had met under any other circumstances, you'd be great mates. I think that might be right. Um, But, um, you know, she's never going to be happy with it. Mm. And having spent all this time looking at her, what are her biggest flaws? I think... (laughs) I think we all see when she's in St Esmits or Parliament how sharp-tongued she can be and how aggressive in a positive sense politically it's part of her political skills part of her political armory and of course you know when she is shafting george brandis for being pompous or something you know all the lefties love it um but she's not always in control of that sometimes she loses control of it and uses that aggression in a way which is ill-judged you don't often see it in public it often happens behind close well not when i say often i don't mean all the time but it happens behind closed doors sufficiently for people to talk to me about it as a flaw mm. and she makes enemies internally by doing that we saw it during the election campaign um, handshake. yes she was speaking with all the south australian centers i think all of them in adelaide uh during the election event and um simon birmingham said something which annoyed her it was about china policy she felt that he was making a uh, a partisan point and at the end of the event, all the senators were meant to be shaking hands, and she shakes Sarah Hanson Young's hand and shakes other hands. When he offers his hand, she very visibly you know, rejected it and turned away. It looked terrible. I think it would have dominated a news cycle. It got a fair bit of attention, but it was the same day that Shorten talked about his mum. Right. And I think that saved that from having a worse impact than otherwise. I mean,
0: obviously she's one of the most capable politicians of her generation, but it feels like there's an admiration for her that goes beyond her enumerated achievements. That's Mm. something else that people, Mm. certainly progressive people, really love about Penny. Thank you very much, (laughs) Meg, and thank you to everyone for coming. (laughs) Thanks a lot. And thank you to Lenore. (laughs)
1: I think, I'm not sure that the Penny Wong fan club, which definitely exists, even a a cult of Penny Wong, I say at one point. Don't her eyebrows have a Twitter account? Yes, her eyebrows have a Twitter account. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure that that's actually about the real Penny Wong. She's not necessarily as left-wing in a simple Mm. sense as people tend to assume. I think people, and, and we do this, I think, to female leaders, let alone female Asian leaders, you know, politicians who seem to be different we assume a whole load of things about them and then, of course, when they inevitably turn out to be somebody a bit different... Or, or human. Di- ..or human, we tend to tear them down and I think she suffers from that. One other political weakness which I would suggest, and this is in the context of somebody who, as I say, I think is tremendously talented, as, as she would say, one of the most talented politicians of our generation, um, she's not actually terrific at the retail politics mm. at selling complex policy to the general population. Which showed in the um, CPRS debate? Showed in the CPRS debate, showed in water, although you know water's a tough one because you know, there's no easy messages there. Um, but of course, if she was to aspire to be Prime Minister, I mean, or leader of the party, I mean, the main job then is a marketing job, mm. selling the message. And she actually isn't naturally good at that. She's learnt to do it. I'm not saying she's bad at it, but it's not her natural talent, it drains her.
0: So that sort of goes to my final question, which is if there's a very capable, capable politician who is uh, so private that they have uh, always wanted to be in the Senate not to contest a lower House seat and who is maybe not the best retail politician in the House, they're probably not going to be Prime Minister,
1: right? Almost certainly not. Um, and you know the easy thing is she is in the wrong house, she'd have to move house, but that could be done, has been done before, um, but the, the bigger answer is she doesn't want it, mm. and never has, and you know, I've spoken to lots of people who've known her throughout her political career, she has been totally consistent on saying she doesn't want it, um, and that the easy reason she gives, well it's not easy, but the, the reason she gives for that is that it would cost votes. That there is still enough homophobia and racism in Australia, it might only be less than five percent, but That's it would cost votes. election folks. turns on less than five percent. Yes, it might cost an election, and she couldn't face that. She also says, "Why would I do it to my family?" Good question. Good question. Um, given that you know we've seen some of the misogyny directed at Julia Gillard, for example, um, but I also think there's an underlying um, recognition. Uh, that her talents are actually not chiefly those of that kind of leader. I mean, she is a leader. She's a leader of the opposition in the Senate, and she's certainly—I call her the intellectual leader of the party. Um, but uh, but to be the leader is actually, I think, not suited to her talents. Okay. But she still mm. might be prime minister. Yes. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should say thank you very much <laughs> yeah. for Meg, and thank you to everyone for
1: coming. Thanks a lot, and thank you to Lenore. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another Gleebooks Author Talk, brought to you by Gleebooks in collaboration with 2SER. If you'd like to be a part of the action next time, please visit gleebookscomau bookings. We'd love to see you there.